Hi, this is Sav. This is Katie. And this is Michael from The Accidentals. And you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with Jay Gilbert and Michael Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. Spotify and fellow streamers soared in 2020, but expect growth to slow. The reality of your music industry dream job. An ex-Spotify exec breaks down modern music's Tarzan economics. And pop on top, R&B rising, the state of the Hot 100's top 10 in Q1 2021. These stories and more on the 39th edition of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your Morning Coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, we are recording this on Mother's Day. Uh, yeah, happy act- Mother's Day. Activities are going on in the rest <laughs> of my house here with my wife and mother of nice. my children. And it's an nice. exciting day. Here we are talking about music. And uh, it's good to see you, my brother. Good to see you, too. Really great, great stuff to talk about this week. Um, one of these stories I, I was just really fascinated about. Oh, yeah. But yes. uh, before we dive in, how about the uh, that intro oh, from uh, The Accidentals? The Accidentals. They've got a new record. It's called Time Out Volume 1. Yeah. And you actually got a little note from them. It's, it's worth reading. Uh, you know, Katie, Katie in the band said, We were lucky to be a little ahead of the live streaming game because we had been doing monthly live streams as part of our Patreon before the pandemic. When we dug into all the platforms we could live stream from, we made a lot of mistakes, and Sav wrote, da- wrote them down as we went. Eventually, that turned into a manual for our musician friends, which ended up on HypeBot and Grammys.com and became the go-to manual for a lot of the industry. Yeah. One day, Sav was recruited by Club uh, Passim. Is that how you say it? Club Passim? Yeah. Or Passim? Uh, to help Kim Ritchie set up her live stream. Kim is a songwriter we've always admired. We actually covered one 
of her songs before we met her. Sav asked her to join us for a virtual timeout show for Writers in the Round using StreamYard to Crowdcast that we hosted every couple of weeks with writers we admired. Suddenly, here we are, writing with one of the songwriters that inspired us to be writers in the middle of quarantine over Zoom. <laughs> it's all surreal, indeed. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. Uh, you know, and Sav also said that, you know, Wildfire started as just a verse, a visual of a beautiful but neglected house covered in ivy, a sparrow nesting above the front door. We were feeling that loss of motion, isolation from humanity. For a while, there was, uh, you know, there the only person we saw was a mailman or the ship shopper. We kept looking back and wondering if we would have done anything different had we known uh, we were on borrowed time. Would we have been more present? Would we have slowed down? The story of this EP began with Wildfire, and you just heard uh, a little piece of Wildfire. So check out The Accidentals Time Out Volume 1, available Everywhere. And it's fun to talk about the business of music, but it's also more fun to talk about the creation of music and the art of music. And we're going to cover yeah. some of that later on in the show. And yeah. Which will be fun. By the way, the chap that I am talking to, Jake Gilbert, he knows heartache, he knows pain, because he is a fan <laughs> of the Minnesota Vikings. Yeah. But he's also Ouch. the curator of the Your Morning Coffee Hurtful. newsletter, which, as you know, is weekly music news for the new music business and a former executive with Universal <clears throat> Music, Sony Music, Warner Music and Fox Home Entertainment. And it's a pleasure right. for me to chat with him every week. Uh, pleasure's all mine. And Mike, besides being you know, the starting middle linebacker for the Minnesota Vikings, is a longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music, where I had many coffees uh, and, and cheeseburgers with the man. <laughs> but to be fair, I really only played two games in the middle linebacker slot. You know, I was yeah, more of a free it. safety. But I, I did pretty well, though. Yeah two games i gotta yeah. say so yeah. absolutely with, uh, ferocity yes indeed hey how about our uh the folks that really get us to the party jay i mean without them yeah. we could not do this show no we love our sponsors you know your morning coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends at Bandzoogle, built by musicians for musicians Bandzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and epk for your music all the features you need for a professional website are built in hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com, try it for free for 30 days. Just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word. You'll get 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code morning coffee. And also sponsored by HypeBot. And boy, we sure appreciate their participation <coughs> since 2004. Yeah. HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It's edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Owen Davis. <coughs> HypeBot and sister, music think, sister blog Music Think Tank are published by Live <laughs> Music Discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. And Bands in Town, yes, with over 55 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform connecting over 530,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates, 
across all platforms. Big thanks. Bands in town, Hypebot, and we of have course, great sponsors. Bands you know that? I well, mean, these are and these are sponsors we actually use and have been using for ages and ages That's and right. ages. And they inform much of what we do and talk about. And we couldn't yeah. uh, be more pleased to get the chance to work with them. So, yeah. Well, let's jump in, uh, my good friend Jay. Uh, the first story: uh, <laughs> a, a, a chap I know you know well, Glenn Peoples from Billboard. This is yeah, the, he's a friend, one of my favorite writers uh, ever. He used to write uh, for Billboard years ago, and then he went to Pandora. He does a lot of research and analysis, and he's on those earnings calls and things like that. And I just love the way that he writes. Uh, the headline for this is, Spotify and fellow streamers soared in 2020, but expect growth to slow. And the, the first two lines that jump out at me, I, this just shows kind of Glenn's style, <clears throat> excuse me, is a year ago, streaming services would have been forgiven for singing along to the REM song, It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. Today, streaming services should be humming along to the raconteur's Steady as she goes. <laughs> By all measures, <laughs> subscriber additions, acquisitions, and investments, heightened level of competition and quality of content, streaming is still booming. But as he says, the services and their investors will need to adjust expectations to the U.S. Yeah. burgeoning post-vaccination out of the home reality in 2021. Yeah, there's some key takeaways here. And he compares, you know, the Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora, Deezers of the world to the Netflix yes. and some of the, the video on demand. <clears throat> he says, don't put too much stock in how companies' quarterly earnings compare year over year to 2020. The pandemic caused some services subscriptions to spike in the uh, early time of the year, like Netflix, or build throughout the year, like Spotify. Long-term trends have not Changed. That's important to note. Uh, On-demand streaming will continue to erode linear programming like cable television and broadcast radio. An odd quarter here or there won't change the course of technology in entertainment. Streaming video on-demand, SVOD, is a battle of titans. AT&T, Comcast, Disney, Apple, Amazon, Viacom, CBS that requires big pockets to survive the war of attrition. Music streaming companies get to focus less on original content and more on technologies to create a better user experience. Yeah, you know, and we're not, you're not <clears throat> talking, no pun intended as we use the word Apple in it, uh, we're not talking apples to apples, really. This is apples to oranges. It's very different. I mean, Maybe even apples to chainsaws. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, yeah, it's, it is, you know, you've got the SVOD folks, and, and then you've got music streaming, and that is just two different worlds. They're both subscription services, but boy, they are very, very different. And they get, they get compared a lot. They do. And they, I mean, it is a, a, but it's such a different thing. A cost, of course, that you're going to, you're, you're forking out every month, but it's, um, it is very, very different. And as we've talked about a number of times, you know, at least in my world, I'm, I'm, I was just literally doing this on Thursday. I'm looking, you know, I pulled up my Apple, like, okay, what the hell am I subscribing to in iTunes? You know, and like, okay, do I really need this service, this subscription? Eh, I think I'm going to, I'm going to delete that for now. And maybe I'll come back and resubscribe. Of course, in the old days of video, you know, you were in, you were locked in. You could not bounce around like that. So when it comes yeah. to SVOD services, I find myself absolutely jumping around. 
But the one constant in my house, actually two constants, are Apple Music and Spotify. Yeah, and the way I look at the audio side, now I subscribe to a lot of um, subscription music services, DSPs, Mm -hmm. um, because of my work. And I like seeing how they differentiate each other. But the bottom line is they all kind of have the same 70 million tracks. Um, there's not really a lot of difference. Sherry, who did this really cool comparison last year where she put the screens of, you know, all these different DSPs side by side and they all looked about the same, the way the new releases they were showing. But if you're talking about Netflix, Hulu, Disney plus, you know, Apple plus, they have different content. Mm -hmm. They have some things that they're creating themselves, TV shows and movies that they're creating themselves. And you really don't see that much on the DSP side, except as uh, Glenn points out on the podcast side. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, and they're wisely jumping into podcasts because again, that's content they can control and own. And and you're going to see, as we are seeing, you know, a gigantic, um, gigantic numbers for for paying for those for that content uh, so the other guy won't have them exclusive content and that's we're going to see that of course trend well over the next several years um yeah it's interesting but it says uh, subscription services will inevitably face a slowdown at some point but how far off that is varies from each platform um and uh, we're going to talk about Will Page a lot later on, but he they mentioned him in this article saying it's likely yeah. that music streaming competing for consumers' attention against TikTok and gaming will struggle to grow even when things return to normal. This is post-pandemic. So yeah. um, it's interesting that we're now talking about these, you know, something like TikTok or Twitch, which are subscription services that have music but are way different from... Like a yeah. streaming or a DSP, a conventional DSP, which we've been talking right. about. So right. that is a bit of a wild card <laughs> as we move into the next couple of years is how will music fans integrate those subscriptions potentially or, right. or those destinations? Um, yeah, that's a good point. And I don't really know. They can, uh, they're not mutually exclusive. It's like the video side. You could have multiple um, platforms for music. If you're talking about, you know, things like Twitch, um, Daniel Eck, who's the, uh, you know, the head of Spotify said in an early earnings call recently that the global audio market could be worth 200 billion by 2030, more than 20 times late later than Spotify's 9.5 million, uh, revenue in, uh, 2020. And Glenn says, you know, this may be wishful thinking on his part, but you can't blame him for thinking big. I tend to think that we're still in this nascent uh, infancy stage. Um, Not everybody is streaming music yet. Um, A lot of people are. There's a lot of subscribers, a lot of paid subscribers, a lot of ad-based subscribers. Um, I think there's still room for growth. And then there's those developing markets, you know, like India and like China. Um, And so I think we've got a ways to go. Um, but th- this was a really interesting piece, and I, I love his comparisons. And, and anytime uh, you know Glenn Peoples writes something, I'm I'm going to be reading it. Yeah. By the way, the, you know, and, and, you know, we're certainly in the music world, and I've forgotten this number. It's uh, it mentions that Apple Plus spent 25 million for that Billie Eilish documentary. It's called The World's a Little Blurry. Uh, so good. Yeah, absolutely. But 25 million. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, I didn't realize they spent that that's much. That's a chunk of change. Absolutely. So again, that is you know, SVOD stuff, but that's also in essentially music content in a different way. So 
there yeah. are there's a lot of money going out there and and i'm yeah. i'm curious to how many other platforms are that are going to pop up you know it's, it's, i was just again looking at my i happen to use an apple tv um looking at the different things that i've got on there and i do have discovery plus i'm trying mm-hmm. paramount plus Still out. I'm not sure whether I'm going to keep that. I've got HBO Max. I've got, uh, I've got a <laughs> Spectrum thing. I've got, you know, it's like, ugh. dear lord. I don't have a. There's not enough hours in the day to to u- utilize all that stuff. So right. I want to kind of pull back. But I think I'm going to be like everybody. I'm going to be bouncing around. And if another piece of content pops up on one of those other services that I want, I'll subscribe for a month, and right. maybe I'll maybe I'll stay. Maybe I won't. Um, but yeah. but churn. And all of these SVOD options are getting a little overwhelming. And, I, you know, I'm saying yeah. uncle. It's like yeah. I've got too many on my, on my system yeah. already. And thank goodness that the music side doesn't have, well, Led Zeppelin's on, yeah. you know, Spotify and the right. Beatles are on Apple Music. I mean, can you imagine what a mess that would be? Yeah, that would be. That would be a <laughs> and that's sort of what video is. They, they all kind of have some of the same repertoire, mm-hmm. but they're really competing on differenti- differentiation. That's easy for you to right. say. That's right. And, That's and, and content moves, you know, so it, it, something might be on Netflix for a period yeah. of time and then it might, you know. That's right. I'm elsewhere. a big West Wing fan right. and it's, it's moved yeah. uh, around. And so I will follow uh, the trail. So um, jumping into the next story, this is my favorite story oh, of really the week. this is really interesting, yes. Um, I, I spent so much time with this. It's called The the Reality of Your Music Industry Dream Job, <laughs> written by Taja Ware, an incredible piece. Um, and this is uh, from uh, Complex. And Taja goes through and takes a lot of these music industry jobs and interview somebody who has the job to ask them questions like, what is most often misconstrued about your job? Yeah. And, you know, what do you wish more people knew about your job? What's the best thing about your job? And what's the most challenging thing about the job? So um, let's roll through some of these because I think there's a lot to learn because some of these jobs, you see people that get them and you think that's a glamorous job. Mm-hmm. I'd like to do that. You want to take the first one? Yeah, they spoke with uh, Dominique Maldonado, who's a senior director of A&R over at Warner's. And she said, what is often misconstrued about the job? And she says, people think that it's just about having taste in identifying talent and signing that talent. Obviously, that is the engine behind what we do. But the work has a lot more to do with how we're able to contribute to the development of that artist in terms of the music they're putting out and when. And then the other part, the part that's very unsexy, is all the paperwork and keeping up with your deadlines. Amen yeah. to that. Absolutely, yeah. the paperwork. And that's, and but I, I think to be fair, that that is one thing that I see is, you know, over the years that we started in the industry to now, especially you know, artist development has really fallen by the wayside, in my opinion. I think, I think A and R, there's a certain amount of of um, basically finding somebody that's that's breaking on their own and then bringing yeah. it in the family and, and yeah. making that fire burn brighter and hotter but not yeah. doing that development like in in our day I think was was more prevalent it, it, even in our day I it was waning yeah but yeah but I agree with that because I think today one of the current hot trends is to see what's going on with TikTok and when somebody's right. blowing up on TikTok bringing them over quickly and striking while the iron is hot and getting something out. But I think what I've learned from my friends that do A&R is that it's not just looking and finding the talent. It's being the evangelist in the building, Mm -hmm. the one that works with 
the PR team, the yeah. one that works with marketing, the one that works with what they used to call sales. Now they call revenue generation. You know, all the <laughs> labels have a different uh, term for it. But you have to get all of those people uh, flying in formation and, and excited about your uh, project as the A&R person. And that's not always easy to do because there's a lot of priorities um, and there's a lot of artists vying for that attention. But then concurrently, you have to work with the artist to make sure, are they putting out their best work mm -hmm. and their most accessible work? You want them to be successful. Are they doing all the right things? So it, it's not super glamorous, but... Uh, what a great gig. What a great gig. Well, and, and then they also ask, what's the most challenging thing about the job? And this is kind of to your point, Dominique said it can be challenging too, and this is specific to my label, but it's really not. Uh, make sure that you're communicating really effectively with the rest of the building exactly what the overall vision is and how that can support the music. The marketing people are experts at what they do and the branding people are experts at what they do. But if you don't have some sense of what impression people are supposed to get from the music itself and you're not able to communicate that, the artist can get really lost. It can be a challenge to work internally to advocate for the artist in that way and yeah. absolutely and that's you know what people there's so many things that can happen even once you get signed and once you make that record it can be a great record and then something maybe comes out on on the label at the same time that is really blowing up and then they've yeah. the attention and the money gets focused on that artist and not that's on right you. and that's yeah I've seen that happen so many times in my years yeah. of working at labels and it's so yeah. disheartening if you see a really good, <clears throat> excuse me, A&R guy or woman, um, they can do magic. I remember one in particular when I was at Universal uh, came in and it, the band was Bob Goblin. Mm, and if you I haven't heard them. Bob yeah, Goblin, absolutely. they were kind of a cross between Cheap Trick, the Cars, and the Sex Pistols. Super melodic, super punk, super great. Um, this guy got our team so excited about them. I flew to Dallas from Washington or from uh, California to um, to see their record release party, and we were all advocates. We were all pushing for this band because the A and R person was so good at telling that narrative, telling that story, and getting us excited about it. Plus, they were really great live. Yeah. So, a good A and R person can be that cheerleader, evangelist, and then also that classic middle child at the labels who can get everybody playing nice. Yeah, right? exactly. But again, even <clears throat> even you've got that that you know that uh, that excitement and and you've communicated that message. Sometimes things dictate that it the attention. And I think I've told this story a number of times when I worked in the Warner family. There was a, a, a signing of an artist named Jennifer Trinan, who's still out there recording, as far as I know. Really talented. Mm -hmm. Big bidding war, and uh, she ended up signing with, I think, with Warner Brothers Records. Maybe it was Reprise. It was one of the Warner labels. And, uh, you know, there was just a lot of excitement. She had done a really great record. And at the same time, almost, as that record came out, a little artist that got no attention at the beginning... Uh, named Alanis Morissette came out and that immediately you know all of the attention all of the money all of the focus went from Jennifer Trine right over all to the air in the room all the air in the room and of course that Alanis record God, I don't know how many millions it sold it was an enormous success but jagged little pill right they, they made a great Jennifer Trinan record and yet it just didn't happen because of what was going on within the label family timing timing right? timing, timing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like seasonality timing a lot of those things these intangibles you can't really 
plan for. Sometimes it's just the right moment. So A&R was the first job on here that they dug yeah. into a little bit. The second one, there's so many on here, we'll have to <clears throat> kind of try to get through all of these, but the second one I thought was interesting was music journalist. Yeah. And they talked to Brianna Holt, who is a, a freelance journalist, which a lot of journalists are. Yeah. You know, I would say a minority of the music journalists that I know are actually working like Glenn does for a, a publication. And they asked the same question, you know, what is often misconstrued about the job? And Brianna said, I, I think a lot of people steer away from the music journalism industry because they worry, quote, what if I get it wrong, end quote, or, you know, this is not what the artist was trying to portray or convey. And I think that's a huge misconception. Also, a lot of people think it's just an easy way to meet musicians, you know, and that's a common stigma that women experience um, in the industry, they asked her, you know, what do you wish more people knew about, you know, being a music journalist? And she said, there's a lot of pressure to portray the artist in the most positive light while still keeping the ethics in journalism. I get a lot of emails and a lot of DMs from music stands who do not agree with the rating I give an album or did not like something that I mentioned about the artist in a profile. I mean, I can't imagine being a, a music journalist. You, you can't really win, right? I mean, yeah. <clears throat> someone's going to be really upset sure. with whatever you write. So they asked, you know, like, what's the best thing about the job? And she said, working closely with people that you look up to, you know, a lot of people say that music is an outlet for them to relieve stress or to deal with a breakup or deal with loss, you know, having such a connection to an artist's song or album and then being able to interview them or review the music, you know, it, it, it's this personal connection, right? So that that's kind of interesting. You know, being a music journalist sounds like it's, you know, all fun and games, but it's, you have to be talented as a writer, I think. And you also have to be able to manage relationships and you want people to read what you do. So you have to be honest but you can't be snotty either. Although yeah. there's a few of those out there. So <laughs> one of the great things they do about the, in the art in this article is they ask what song or album best describes your journey in the music industry. And they spoke to an art director who's over at Atlantic and I, I think it's a, she, and she said well, uh, that that song is grinding all my life by Nipsey hustle. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, get that. It's, you know, and then they have, of course the last one is an artist or one of the ones is artist manager. And, you yeah. know, I mean, you work with so many managers now, and, yeah. and that is just... This one, this nailed it. What this guy said, his name is Jake Marlowe, and he, he manages Snot, uh, the rapper Snot, which is like a dollar sign, N-O-T, Snot. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'll let you take the lead on this, but he really nailed it with what I hear from managers. Yeah, he said, what is often misconstrued about the job, the one thing that I get is a lot of is that people think that I work for the record label, Snot, uh, snot is signed to. It. I, they think I'm an employee, <laughs> and I'm not. Yeah, and yeah. it's like you know, what do you wish more people knew about the job? He said, doing this kind of a life, doing this is kind of a life-consuming job. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to turn it off, and it's a good thing and a bad thing. One day you commit to doing what you think you want to do. Three years later, I eat, breathe, and sleep snot in this case, and everything in the universe that is going on with us right now, whether yeah. it be his career as a recording artist or the clothing company that we've started, or the touring company that we have. We started a label. There's so many different things that are going on. I think what the people don't know is this shit, it don't stop. 
And that's, yeah, it's a 24 hour a day gig. Or yeah, it, it sounds really glamorous because you see somebody, you know, walking down the red carpet or at a show backstage. But my friends that are managers, it's it's a lifestyle. And you may be one night, you may be trying to get somebody's passport that they left in Sweden and they've already landed in Germany. You may be trying to get guitar strings for someone um, right before a show that doesn't have them. You, you know, somebody is having a mental breakdown on the road or the van broke down or there's just so many of these issues and every day is different. I get it. That's super exciting. But I would say an artist manager's job description is a problem solver. Yeah. Well, and, and, and an air traffic controller. I mean, you therapist. really are therapist. <laughs> yeah. It's, and you know, and just like within, just like a baseball manager, a football coach, you know, it's like, it's when, when, when thing there, in fact, I saw this deep purple documentary and they were talking about their managers saying, you know, he said, when things are going up, we're going up the charts. When things are going bad, the manager says, you're going down the charts. You know, there's no we in that. And, but you're also kind of the one variable. And, and I've worked with so many different artists over the years that fire their manager because things aren't going well had nothing to do with the manager but that was just the variable that was immediate and they could they could an action item they could do it just quickly let's change it shuffle the deck and get new management and it and this in my experience it rarely changes things but you know so you put your heart and soul into this and then there's a lot of poaching in, in that area and one artist manager told me one time that being an artist manager was a lot like being a quarterback on a football team in that you got far too much credit for the victory yes. and you got far too much blame for the, the loss. loss. That's exactly right. <clears throat> but they do, they cover playlist curator, uh, folk, uh, art director, as I mentioned, they have also got a uh, concert promoter and uh, digital marketing. So it's a really interesting article and it's, they talk about that digital marketing one. Oh yeah. Let me, let me scroll down there sure. because that, that digital marketing one, I'm a digital marketer. It's what I do for a living. And I really enjoyed reading this because it was spot on. Um, they interviewed Ahmed uh, Diabate, um, head of operations for Integral Studio. And the same questions, you know, what is often most uh, misconstrued about the job? And Ahmed said uh, that there's a one-size-fits-all solution for artists. For some artists, it makes sense to have a heavy TikTok presence. For others, going live on Instagram is super effective. But it really depends on the specific artists and the behavior of their fans. I couldn't agree with this more. Everybody looks for this cookie-cutter approach. Every marketing plan we do is different. It has to be custom because no two artists are the same. Uh, The second question, what do you wish more people knew about the job? What I wish people knew more about digital marketing is it's about hitting KPIs, you know, key performance indicators, hitting uh, KPIs. It's, it's easy to want to go viral or be lit on TikTok, which is what a lot of people approach us with. But for most artists, digital marketing is, marketing is about steady growth uh, of new fans and being consistent and unique in the way that you're engaging with, with them. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we've we we talk we've talked about this a number of times on the show of of you know the 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 sort of template f- uh, kind of way of doing business when we first started. You know, it was it was variable, but there were fairly broad categories in our early days wh- that were you know fairly standard. Whether you know video and marketing and publicity and airplay and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just so many more things now to be consider to consider when you're marketing. 
in the world of artist development these days. And I think that's she she kind of if it's a she she kind of nailed it down very much in this in this piece. And she said the best yeah. thing about the job it's the data because we look at a ton of different metrics when we see results beating out our own expectations. Our internal group chats start popping off and going crazy. Yeah. And of course, the most challenging is is it's probably twofold. The first part is the educational aspect. We're often teaching labels and teams about why they shouldn't care about vanity metrics. Mm-hmm. I, that's a let's underline vanity Ooh. metrics because that's a Amen. great line <laughs> yeah. and getting them hip to metrics that affect the bottom line or new fan retention. The second portion is when we have to let teams know that the song that they chose and put all their effort in might not be the best possible single. A lot of times people are making single determinations based on small sample sizes. Sometimes it works, but sometimes people choose track three when they should have chosen track eight, and the data shows it. Right, and that's why Big Champagne was so big back in the day when it was measuring bit torrents and peer-to-peer file trading because for the first time, we really saw what the fans were reacting to without any of the hype of the boardroom. And this is so true about the data and vanity metrics. People are lazy. So they look at, well, what's your Spotify followers? You know, what is your Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube? Okay. That's interesting. What's more interesting is seeing the trend behind that. And even what's more interesting is what is the engagement on all of those? What are you doing that's getting engagement, what's working, what's not working. Look at your insights. Look at what like competitive artists are doing. I mean, it goes on and on. That's just scratching the surface. But I thought, well, first of all, this was my favorite piece this week because there's so much in it. And if you read one piece in your morning coffee this week, make it this one because there's so much real world insights, Mm -hmm. you know, um, there's this old line that my grandfather used to use. It's, you know, it's one thing for me to tell you how hot this candle is. It's a whole nother experience for you to put your finger in the flame (laughs) and the people that they're interviewing here have had their finger in the flame. They didn't read it from a book. They didn't read it from an article. They're actually doing it day in and day out. And that's where you get the real great advice uh, is from these people who have actually walked the walk. Absolutely, great article, really fun to read, and and it, you know even and even within when you if you're in a label environment, you know it's it's amazing how little you know sometimes about the people on the other floor that that do a different job than you, and so. I think that's one of the things that I always thought was pretty lame about working in the music business is there was no sort of. Um, like you know, your first day of work, you, nobody kind of lay, laid it out. Here are the departments. Here's what they do. Here's how the here's the history. You know, there's none of that. There's no education, and yeah. so you, it, it's. It, I think the the industry still tends to be very siloed, even within yeah. their own company. You know, it's like those. That's legal over there. They just. They do legal stuff. It's like, yeah. okay, what does that mean? Well, they look at Other know. businesses are better Absolutely. at this. Like I, I went to Fox Home Entertainment and mm-hmm. did international digi- digital strategy for a couple of years. And when I first got there, they had a program called Immersion. Now, I hadn't worked outside of the music industry, and I didn't know what this was. And basically, for the first couple of weeks that you're working with a company, they had me pick out executives, and it could be the head of the studio. I mean, you could pick out anybody that you're going to be working with, and then you go and you sit down with them for 45 minutes, and you say, what do you do? This is what I do. How are we going to work together? I learned more in that first two weeks than I did the whole rest of the year about 
because now you're seeing, oh, that's what that guy does or that woman does. And that's how it relates to what I do. And so I should probably keep them in the loop on A, B, and C. And I will tell you that my last kind of industry job before I started my own company was with uh, Warner ADA. Um, I handled Amazon for them globally. And they started doing something before I left where they had executives do a little you know, round table where you could go in and it was usually at lunchtime and they would tell you about what they do and what their path was of how they got there. And it was really more for the interns and for new people. Mm -hmm. But I went, I went to a bunch of those because I thought it was so interesting. I like learning how, what people's path is to their, their job because they're they're never the same. No, no. And, and like you, you know, I kind of took it upon myself when I would work, for, go to a new company, which, as you can tell, I went to lots of new companies over the years, you know, but you <laughs> kind of you kind of have to search those out. You know, you, you kind of have to be proactive yourself and kind of determine, uh, you know, you meet, meet somebody, hey, what, what, what do you do? And then sit down with them for a minute and kind of get, you know, find out about that. So that's anyway, they cover a lot of that stuff in this complex article. So yeah, do don't, don't miss this article. Don't it's, miss it's, it, no. I mean, we could talk for hours just about this this one article because there's so many different jobs that they go through that they interview about. But uh, I thought it was just a fantastic piece. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's jump on to the next piece. And this is, we talked about this last week. This is uh, out of Rolling Stone. An ex-Spotify exec breaks down modern music's Tarzan economics. Mm-hmm. And you actually did perhaps actually speak to certain people at some point. And, uh, I did because yeah. we covered this article last week. Um, which was called uh, Twitch's Rockonomics. We talked about it. It was in your morning coffee. Twitch is a thing, people. I mean, it is a really great... It's not just for gaming. It's not just for podcasts. It's, uh, you know, a great place for artists to engage and grow an audience. And I've got an artist uh, that's on there that's doing really well. I've been checking out some of the newer artists that are on there. But we... The the person who wrote that piece was a guy named Will Page, who was a, you know, a former chief economist for Spotify and he's got a new book coming out and that's what this article in Rolling Stone the headline is an ex-Spotify executive breaks down modern music's Tarzan economics I got on the phone with him Uh, he's in London and spoke with him last week and it was just such a thrill because I've been following him for years and he's 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 really smart, but there's a lot of smart people out there. He's hilarious. <laughs> and he also can take these very complex things and simplify them so even a knucklehead like me can understand. And you know, you have a degree in economics and you understand that it's it's not just about numbers, it's about human behavior and I get this because you've told me this. Um but Will Page is uh, phenomenal. I pre-ordered the book. I think it comes out next week, maybe? I'll have to look. May 18th. It comes out May 18th. Anyway, so he compiled his learnings from two decades of work as an economist for Spotify. Um, He was there in the startup phase, and he also worked with the uh, British Music Copyright Collective, uh, PRS. So he he spoke with Rolling Stone about the key insights of of this new book uh, that's coming out, and they, they interview him. And uh, I would love for you to touch on this, the story uh, that he has about his dad, because I don't know if this is common in economics, but it's pretty interesting way of looking at things. Well, and he mentioned when he was 11, he was sitting on a beach in Scotland and his father was a math teacher. And he said, you know, dad, 
t- t- tell me what economics means. And his dad points to the water and asks him how a politician should combat a rise in child drowning deaths. And he said, and then young, uh, young Will Page says, why not make swimming lessons compulsory? No more children should drown. Surely we need to ensure they can all swim. And then his father says, do people who can't swim usually go in the sea? So would we have more or fewer children in the water or as a result of your policy? And if a certain percentage of children swimming drown, then, and he realized, then more would drown. He said, though, it, though intuitive, uh, he said a better, less, but less straightforward solution might be to design alert systems for dangerous tides. It's his first lesson in what modern day Page calls pivotal thinking, in which uh, one of the eight principles, and, and pivotal thinking is what is, comprises the eight principles in this new book he's got coming out called Tarzan Economics. And it's a treat, this word, it's a treaty, treatise, 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 how do you sound that word? I don't know, whatever. I don't know. It's, it's on entrepreneurship on in the breathless <laughs> digital era, as he says. And so he's talking about this. And one of the things, by the way, there's something that, uh, the there's a great line that just jumped out at me in here. Mm-hmm. He said, um, where I got to find it. Uh, this is it. He said, when barriers to entry fall, supply exceeds demand. And, you know, he's talking about, you know, how this money and how few, how artists, so many artists are not making wow. any money. But he talks about, he said, last year, major labels released 1.2 million tracks. DIY artists released 9.5 million tracks. And by the way, I would say that 1.2 million that major labels release, a lot of that could be re-released and, and you know, catalog Fair. stuff. So it's probably not necessarily 1.2 new tracks. New. But the fact yeah. is that, you know, something on the order of eight times, DIY artists are releasing, releasing eight times more tracks. And then we get mm. to that whole thing about when barriers to entry fall, supply exceeds demand. And that is fascinating and, and a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, um, it's close to home. It sounds like that's what's happening absolutely, today. Absolutely, absolutely. There's just so much music out there. And, yeah. you know, you wonder why people are, what's the number? 65,000 tracks a day? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's the current track, 70 million in aggregate. Stunning amount of new music coming out. And how in the world can those people all make a living out of music? Supply, maybe out-distancing demand a a little bit. By a gigantic I I can't wait to read this book. That that article we talked about last week, uh, Twitch's Rockonomics, if you missed it, man, go back and and check that one out. It's so well-designed and so well-laid out. And, you know, Will is such a a great writer, and he's funny and he's smart. They asked him, you know, when did you start forming the idea for this book, Tarzan Economics? And he said, I felt like I needed to develop a plan B after Spotify went public in 2018. My passion has always been teaching economics, especially to people who don't think they can understand it. And it's always been an ambition of mine to teach it at scale. So, um, sounds like he's dumbing it down for me, Mike. (laughs) This, by the way, this guy is a real economist. He is a smart, smart cookie, but he's kind of talking also, he mentions, um, kind of legacy philosophies that need to be upturned. He says, for instance, or for instance, the use of data, does the industry need a more sophisticated or nuanced way 
to look at data points. And he kind of talks about this, but he has an interesting thing. He says, back in 2013, I remember doing a study on music festivals, streaming, and social media. What is going to be interesting now is with the onslaught of TikTok and Snapchat and Twitch, where does the music journey begin? What is the order of events? Does someone rise on TikTok first, then streaming, then vinyl, then sales, then radio as a distant fifth? He said, I think this is a good example of how all parties in a food chain need to keep sharpening their knives. Nice. Keep revisiting the order of events to figure out where they should pivot, what they should, where they should pivot to next. The anatomy of a hit is constantly changing. What TikTok has achieved in the span of six months has completely rewritten the rule book again. If TikTok mm-hmm. is where discovery happens, then Spotify is perhaps further down the food chain now. And it's it's yeah. a really fascinating concept of again the order order of things and yeah wow yeah. you know i just never i that's 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 heady stuff it is and he talks about something that we've we talk about quite a, a bit you know the pro rata model versus mm-hmm. user centric on how you get paid for streaming right right and we, we we've you know done deep dives into a lot of articles about this everybody has an opinion about it but he says i love this debate because it makes us talk about fair division a long forgotten concept in economics which came out of three polish mathematicians at a cafe who looked at a cake and said what's the best way to cut this cake well how about i cut the cake but you get to choose your slice what a brilliant way of ensuring it's fair but how do you introduce a third person so there is some economics theory here in terms of how you divvy up this fixed pot of cash. If you want to have a user-centric streaming model, you have to not just consider the benefits, but also the costs to users. I can give you an efficient distribution pro rata, or I can give you a fair distribution user-centric. Another concern is volatility of the worth of streams. Currently, all streams are worth the same, But what happens if one stream is worth $4 and another is worth 13 cents? What if a lot of people join the service and Drake receives an even greater share of the royalty pot than before? I love this. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's fascinating. And... You know, he also mentions that, you know, uh, he said what they asked him, what industries have most impressed you with the, the type of vine to vine thinking you advocate <laughs> for the book? Uh, it's, you know, the Tarzan thing. Mm-hmm. He said, if I pay for Netflix, I'm probably more likely to pay for Disney Plus, Amazon Prime, HBO Max. But to get my 60 million songs, all I need is $9.99 for a Spotify subscription and not a cent more. Mm-hmm. And it's been $9.99 since 2002. So it's fascinating how video streaming has performed a similar Tarzan journey to music, but it's been able to extract maybe 40 to $60 a month out of a single consumer as opposed to a flat tab. Video yeah. streaming has worked out how to cross-pollinate each other's gardens, but also how to grow the overall ARPU, the interesting, the, our, our favorite... Average revenue producer. Yeah, we use that a lot. Our favorite acronym. Uh, yeah. So it's interesting. You know, again, th- th- these are different, but they're the same. You know, they're subscription services, but they're different. And so it's yeah. uh, it's it's a fascinating... Uh, like you said, I'm ready for the book as well. It's going to be a fascinating read, and I can hardly yeah. wait to jump into it. But it's... Yeah. Wow, it's, it's, it's a great article, and, and they just kind of scratch the surface of this in Rolling Stone, but it's... Uh, yeah, we'll we'll definitely talk yeah, about we, it when it comes out. Um, uh, one final thought on on this piece near the end, he, he said something that really kind of resonated, and we touched base on this a little bit uh, in a previous story. But does a listener really care if an artist is signed to Universal or Warner or Sony? No. 
What Spotify did was make it really accessible to discover the artist and ownership of that artist has nothing to do with it. So I think the new industry could learn from Spotify's collective solution of just one platform where you can go to get all the content. The solution could be, you know, Apple News or it could be specialisms like, you know, what The Athletic does. So um, to be continued, but really fascinating guy, really fascinating uh, story. And I'm really looking forward to reading Tarzan Economics, Eight Principles for Pivoting Through Disruption. Pivoting Through Disruption. What a great line and what a great uh, concept to be chatting about when it comes to entertainment. So, yeah. And then this, is a, this last article, Jay, is so fascinating as well. It's, uh, this is out of Billboard. Pop mm-hmm. on Top, R&B Rising, <clears throat> the state of the Hot 100's Top 10 in Q1 2021. And this is really about kind of deconstructing hit songs and getting to the sort of core elements of what they are. And I don't know about you, but in many ways, this kind of makes me really uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it's, it's kind of talking about there's a there's a. a service that's called Hit Songs Deconstructed. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a subscription service, and mm-hmm. and they do a couple of things. They do kind of reports on current songs, but they also it also gives you it's like data points when you're actually creating songs. So yeah. you know what is successful now, and how do you incorporate that as your writing songs it's the hit song uh, the best way to understand why today's hits are so successful is to identify what makes them work they distill hit songs down to their foundational building blocks and then they you are supposed to learn from that and then incorporate those that knowledge into your writing of songs yeah does that make you slightly uncomfortable it does me it, well it, it does um i i at one level you know, it's a different world now. You know, it's don't bore us, get to the chorus. Yeah. You know, you don't want to have long intros because people might skip those. You know, you um, you want to get to that repetitive, hooky part of a song as soon as possible. But what I love about Hit Songs Deconstructed is that, let's say you're a songwriter or you're a producer or you're an A&R person, you can kind of get a really good sense of the trends today mm-hmm. because it evolves, it changes. What is popular in music today as far as songwriting, instrumentation, uh, the arrangement is not the same as it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Right. And so I think forewarned is forearmed and yeah is it a little weird and does it get you thinking about well when is ai artificial intelligence going to start writing the songs for mm-hmm. these hit artists i still think that there's always going to be that human uh interaction but along with technology whether it's the way that recordings uh changed you know the beatles pioneered a lot of that whether it's some of the cool keyboards that came out and synthesizers and we could go on and on there's all of these developments in technology music has always just kind of adopted them and rolled them in and used them and i just see that as a another tool but where you have a tool there's always someone who's going to try to misuse it yeah <laughs> yeah but anyway in this billboard they they, they talked about the latest the, the top 10 and as analyzed by hit songs deconstructed and, and what the kind of trends were in the first quarter yeah. of 2021. And so here's some of the take the, the takeaways. Pop tops R&B bound. So in Q1 of 2021, 42% of all Hot 100 top 10s were primarily pop. 
the leading genre for a third consecutive quarter, though down from a 48% share in back in Q, uh, Q4 of 2020, mm-hmm. the genre rose from 41% in Q3 2020 uh, and 30% in Q2 of 2020. So the what pop. they consider pop is mm-hmm. now kind of uh, jumping Olivia, up as Rodrigo. well, yeah. Uh, yeah, as well as R and B, and you know they actually they they name check one of my favorite tunes, the, the uh, "Leave the Door Open" by Silk Sonic, which to me is an absolute throwback to the '70s kind of Philly soul sound, which just yeah, God, I did, that's I love that stuff. Comfort food, yeah. So R and B and soul surged to a 21 percent share of all Hot 100 top tens in Q1 to 2021. Uh, up from four percent back in Q4 of 2020. So interesting, you know. And then that again, I'm yeah. uh, that that kind of what I would consider classic soul and R and B. Yeah. And then and you then, know what I love about this, Mike, is the uh, you know we were talking about the Accidentals who did the uh, opening uh, for our podcast today, and they play cello, violin, mm-hmm. bass, drums, guitar, you know, all sorts of you know piano. And I thought it was such a rarity as I've gotten to uh, follow this band that I love so much that they use a lot of instrumentation in my favorite bands growing up, whether it was the Beatles, Elton John, you know, that sort of thing, Jackson Brown, they use a lot of different instrumentation. And I felt like that, you know, I don't want to mean to sound like the old guy in the room. Hey, get off my lawn. Too late. But I, I, no- <laughs> yeah. I noticed that that had kind of gone away with yeah. a lot of popular music. And I had a conversation about uh, this with a friend of mine, a friend of ours, uh, David Waters, and yeah. I were talking uh-huh. about this. And, you know, he's a fantastic pianist. And that there, there wasn't a lot of guitar in music anymore. Like kids aren't really learning to play guitar, maybe like they used to. And part of this article was so inspiring to me. It said... They're instrumental in hits, and they go on to say 19 instruments can be heard in the Hot 100 Top 10s in Q1 of 2021, with three continuing a heavy uh, prominence, drums, percussion, and non-bass synth and synth-based, with each played in over 90% of hits in that span. And, you know, they, they use this Bruno Mars, Anderson Pock, you know, Sonic kind of example, where you see all the different instruments being played. To me, that is so encouraging mm-hmm. that instruments are making a comeback, that it's not just somebody on their iPad in their dorm room sure. who cr- created a cool beat. You know what I mean? Yeah. What, but, what, of course, what I was thinking when they talk about the different instruments, it's like, you know, I've, I've got a couple of synthesizers in, in my next room. I could play a note on that that you would think is a cello, but it's not a cello. It's coming out of my yeah. keyboard or a, or a sitar or, a, you know, any number of instruments. But those sounds, those unique sounds are being used. Where yeah. they came from remains to be seen. But they talk about the different Were mixing boards. Were they real sounds, Mike? I mean, if you have, let's say, a cello there, is that a sampled cello or is it an imitation of a cello sound? It could be either. It could be yeah. a sample or it could be a combination of sample attack and then synthesis. Interesting. To, to, yeah, so the way that... That Did you ever have a Moog synthesizer? Well, I could never afford a Moog in the day. Oh, were they super yeah. expensive? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And I've used I've used them, but they're they're more for synthesizer sounds as opposed to imitative things. Sampling is, you know, if you want a string section, you would need typically you would use a sampler or you know really great samples of strings. Um, so yeah, all of the various technologies are out there. And and again, you know, the, the, what's interesting you mentioned what you know why young kids aren't really necessarily learning instruments is because. They don't need to, you know, if you have GarageBand or Logic or, 
you know, any one of the digital audio workstations, they all have these wonderful, great sounds built into them. And all you need is a MIDI keyboard to just trigger them. And they're all built in. And it's crazy simple. But I'll tell you, when you go see the Accidentals live and Katie's playing the cello live and Savannah's playing, you know, bass or violin um, and it's it's all real. It's not sampled. There's something about the genuine article oh, yes. that just, you feel it. You may not hear it, but you feel it. Absolutely. It's so good. Absolutely. So good. But a good article uh, by Gary Trust in Billboard talking about just, you know, stylistically and, and technologically yeah. what, what the trends are. And yeah. if you really want to, uh, if you want to blow your mind, go to hitsongsdeconstructed.com <laughs> and look at the analysis and the tools and the master classes. And you can even get the full project, you know, if, in this case, Logic, which is the kind of grown up garage band um they'll send you the files and you can look at them and see how they were composed how they constructed it's like oh yeah. the tools jay the tools that are out there pretty remarkable yeah yeah and one last thing before we we say goodbye i highly recommend if you're into this stuff check out the podcast song exploder mm. uh yes. rishi Keshawe, uh used to be on the west wing um podcast uh, fantastic podcast where he'll break down uh, how tracks were yeah. written, recorded, created. It is uh, a deep dive in the rabbit hole if you love that stuff. <laughs> exactly. So on that note, we must wrap up episode number 39. Jay, how about a big thanks to Hypebot Bands in Town and, of course, Bandzoogle. Man, we sure, sure appreciate it. We really do. And uh, on that note, let's go spend some time with our respective wives and mothers. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. Absolutely. And uh, have a wonderful week, everyone. And thanks for listening to episode number 39. And Jay and I will be back next week with episode number 40 of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.